Hello and welcome to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and in this episode we're going to look at how the Second Crusade developed in the West. In the last episode we covered the fall of Edessa, which was one of the four Crusader kingdoms to Imad al-Din Zengi, the emir of Aleppo and Mosul. Zengi had united these two Arab emirates, which made him strong enough to seriously challenge the Crusaders, because the real problem Islam had before Zengi was that it was politically too fragmented to defeat the Crusaders. But in the 1140s, this was starting to change, and the Crusaders knew that they were now on the back foot. So their answer was to appeal to the West for another crusade to help them. As before, I'll read extracts from my abridged version of Sir Stephen Runciman's brilliant History of the Crusades, which is the all-time classic on the Crusades. Runciman was also a very famous Byzantine historian, and when he wrote it many years ago, he really revolutionised the way people looked at the Crusades by seeing them through Byzantine and also Islamic eyes. And by doing this, he was keen to point out that the Crusaders were actually most of the time, a pretty unattractive lot, and not the great heroes that certainly the medieval chroniclers made them out to be. So, let's go. Hope you enjoy it. As soon as it was known in Jerusalem that Edessa had fallen, Queen Melisande sent to Antioch to consult with the government there about the dispatch of an embassy to Rome to break the news to the Pope and to ask for a new crusade. It was decided that the ambassador should be Hugh, Bishop of Jabala. Despite the urgency of his message, the bishop did not arrive until the autumn of 1145 at the Papal Curia. Pope Eugenius III was at Viterbo as Rome was in the hands of a commune resentful of papal rule. With him was the German chronicler Otto of Freisingen, who recorded the Pope's reception of the dreadful news. He was devastated. While Bishop Hugh went on to inform the courts of France and Germany, Pope Eugenius decided to preach for a new crusade. But the papacy was not in the position to direct the movement as Pope Urban had tried to do. Since his session in February, Pope Eugenius had not been able to enter Rome. He could not yet afford to travel beyond the Alps. Fortunately, he was on good terms with the two chief potentates of Western Europe. These were Conrad of Hohenstaufen, King of Germany, who had owed his throne to ecclesiastical support and had been crowned by the papal legate. The other was Louis VII, the pious King of France, with whom papal relations were even more cordial. After some early misdemeanours due to the influence of his wife Eleanor of Aquitaine, the King Louis VII had repented and allowed himself to be guided in all things by ecclesiastical advisers, notably by the great abbot of Clairvaux, St. Bernard. It was to King Louis that the Pope decided to apply for help for the East. He needed Conrad's help in Italy for the subjection of the Romans and the curbing of the ambitions of Roger II of Sicily. He did not wish Conrad to assume other obligations. But King Louis was king of the land from which most of the Frankish princes and lords in the East had come 
come. He was the obvious leader for an expedition that was to relieve them. On the 1st of December, 1145, Pope Eugenius addressed a bull to King Louis and all the princes and the faithful of the Kingdom of France, urging them to go to the rescue of Eastern Christendom and promising them security for their worldly possessions and remission for their sins. The news of the fall of Edessa horrified the West. The interest and enthusiasm aroused by the First Crusade had quietened down. The capture of Jerusalem had fired men's imagination, and immediately afterwards large reinforcements had willingly set out in answer to appeals from the East, as the Crusades of 1101 had shown. But the Crusades of 1101 had ended in disaster, and in spite of that, the Frankish states in the East had held and Consolidated their position. Reinforcements still came, but in driblets. There was a steady stream of pilgrims, many of whom would stay long enough to fight in a summer campaign. Among these were potentates like Sigurd of Norway, or there might be a great company of humbler folk such as the Englishmen, Flemings and Danes who came in 1106. The Italian maritime cities would from time to time send a fleet to help in the capture of some seaport, but their motive was frankly commercial interest, which also brought in a growing number of individual Italian merchants. But since Baldwin I's reign, there had been few of these armed pilgrim companies. Of recent years, the only one of note had been that led by King Fulk's son-in-law, Thierry, Count of Flanders. Immigrants had continued to arrive, younger sons like Balian of Chartres, founder of the House of Ibelin, or barons like Hugh of Le Puisse or Manasses of Hierge, who hoped to take advantage of kinship with the royal house. A more constant and valuable element was provided by the knights that came out to join the great military orders, the Hospitallers and the Templars. The orders were gradually assuming the role of the standing army of the kingdom, and the many grants of lands made to them by the crown and its vassals showed how highly they were appreciated. But ever since the dispersal of the armies of the First Crusade, there had not been in the east a Frankish force strong enough to undertake a grand offensive against the infidel. It needed the shock of the disaster at Edessa to rouse the West again. For meanwhile, in the perspective of Western Europe, the Crusader states of Syria had seemed merely to form the left flank of the Mediterranean-wide campaign against Islam. The right flank was in Spain, where there were still tasks for a Christian knight to perform. The progress of the cross in Spain had been held up during the second and third decades of the century, owing to the quarrels between between Queen Uraca of Castile and her husband, King Alfonso I of Aragon, but the Queen's son and heir by her first Burgundian marriage, Alfonso VII, brought about a renaissance in Castile. In 1132, six years after his accession, he began a series of campaigns against the Muslims, which brought him by 1147 to the gates of Cordoba, where he was recognised as suzerain. Already in 1134, he had taken the title of emperor to show that he was overlord of the peninsula and vassal to no man. Meanwhile, Alfonso I, freed by Araca's death of Castilian complications, spent his last years taking the offensive with varying success in Mercia. 
And along the coast, Raymond Berenger III, Count of Barcelona, pushed his power southward. Alfonso I died in 1134. His brother, the ex-monk Ramiro, reigned disastrously for three years. But in 1137, Ramiro's two-year-old daughter, Queen Petronilla, was married to Raymond Berenger IV of Barcelona and Catalonia and Aragon were united to form a power whose naval strength enabled it to complete the reconquest of northeastern Spain. Thus, by 1145, things were going well in the Spanish theatre, but a storm was brewing. The Almoravids, who had dominated Muslim Spain for the last half century, had fallen into a hopeless decay. Their place in Africa had already been taken by the Almohads, a sect of ascetic reformers, almost Gnostic in its theology and its insistence on a class of adepts founded by the Berber prophet Ibn Tumart and carried on even more aggressively by his successor Abd al-Mumin. Abd al-Mumin defeated and slew the Almoravid monarch Tashfin ibn Ali near Tlemcen in 1145. In 1146, he completed the conquest of Morocco and was ready to move into Spain. With such preoccupations, the Christian knights in Spain were insensible to an appeal from the east. On the other hand, now that the Spanish kingdoms were securely founded, they no longer offered the same scope as in the previous century to the knights and princes of France. The centre of the battlefield against Islam was in fact occupied by King Roger II of Sicily. Roger had united all the Norman dominions in Italy and assumed the royal title there in 1130. He was well aware of the strategic importance of his kingdom, which was ideally placed to control the Mediterranean. But to make that control complete, it was necessary for him to have a footing on the African coast opposite to Sicily. The quarrels and rivalries of the Muslim dynasties in northern Africa, intensified by the declining power of the Almoravids in Morocco and the ineffectual rule of the Fatimids in Tunisia, together with the dependence of the African cities upon the import of grain from Sicily, gave Roger his chance. But his first campaigns from 1123 to 1128 brought him no profit beyond the acquisition of the island of Malta. In 1134, by judiciously timed assistance, he induced El Hassan, Lord of Madia, to accept him as overlord, and the next year he occupied the island of Jerba in the Gulf of Gabiz. Successful raids on Muslim shipping whetted his appetite and he began to attack the coastal towns. In June 1143, his troops entered Tripoli but were forced to retire. Exactly three years later, he recaptured the city just as an internal revolution was installing an Almoravid prince as its governor. This time, he could not be dislodged and Tripoli became the nucleus for a Norman colony in Africa. King Roger was thus admirably fitted to take part in the new crusade, but he was suspect. His behaviour to the papacy had never been dutiful and seldom deferential. His presumption in crowning himself king had been resented by the other potentates of Europe, and St Bernard had commented to Lothair of Germany that, quote, whoever makes himself king of Sicily 
attacks the Holy Roman Emperor. End of quote. St. Bernard's disapproval meant the disapproval of French public opinion. Roger was still more unpopular among the princes in the East, for he had made it clear that he had never forgiven the Kingdom of Jerusalem for its treatment of his mother Adelaide and his own failure to secure the succession promised in her marriage contract while he claimed Antioch as sole heir to the male line of his cousin Bohemond. His presence on the crusade was therefore not desired but it was hoped that he would carry on the war against Islam in his own particular sector. The Pope's choice of King Louis of France to organise the new crusade was easy to understand, and the king responded eagerly to the call. When the papal bull arrived following close on the news brought by the Bishop of Jabala, Louis had just issued a summons to his tenants-in-chief to meet him at Christmas at Bourges. When they were assembled, he told them that he had decided to take the cross, and he begged them to do likewise. He was sadly disappointed in their answer. The nobility showed no enthusiasm. The chief elder statesman of the realm, Suger, abbot of Saint-Denis, voiced his disapproval of the king's projected absence. Only the bishop of Longres spoke up in support of his sovereign. Chilled by his vassal's indifference, Louis decided to postpone his appeal for three months and summoned another assembly to meet him at Easter at Vézelay. In the meantime, he wrote to the Pope to tell him of his own desire to lead a crusade and he sent for the one man in France whose authority was greater than his own, Bernard Abbot of Clairvaux. Saint Bernard was now at the height of his reputation. It is difficult to look back across the centuries and really appreciate the tremendous impact of his personality on all who knew him. The fire of his eloquence had been quenched in the written words that survive. As a theologian and a controversialist, he now appears rigid and a little crude and unkind. But from the day in 1115, when at the age of 25 he was appointed abbot of Clairvaux, until his death nearly 40 years later, he was the dominant influence in the religious and political life of Western Europe. It was he who gave the Cistercian order its impetus. It was he who, almost single-handed, had rescued the papacy from its fiercest critics. The fervour and sincerity of his preaching combined with his courage, his vigour and the blamelessness of his life to bring victory to any cause that he supported, save only against the embittered Cathar heretics of Longadoc. He had been interested in the fate of Eastern Christendom and had himself in 1128 helped in drawing up the rule for the Order of the Temple. When the Pope and the King begged for his help in preaching the crusade, he eagerly complied. The assembly met at Vézelay on the 31st of March, 1146. The news that St. Bernard was going to preach brought visitors from all over France, as at Clermont half a century before, the crowd was too great to be fitted into the cathedral. St. Bernard spoke from a platform erected in a field outside the little town. His words have not been handed down. We only know that he read out the papal bull, asking for a holy expedition and promising absolution to all that took part in it, and that he then made use of his incomparable rhetoric to show the urgency of the papal demand. Very soon his audience was under his spell. Men began to cry for crosses. Crosses, give us crosses. It was not long before 
all the stuff that had been prepared to sew into crosses was exhausted and St Bernard flung off his own outer garments to be cut up. At sunset he and his helpers were still stitching as more and more of the faithful pledged themselves to go on this great crusade. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Join us each week on the Well Beyond Medicine podcast as we explore the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. Listen and subscribe at NemoursWellBeyond.org, where you'll hear pediatric experts, researchers, and policymakers from around the world discussing ways they are revolutionizing children's health. I'm your host, Carol Vassar. Let's go. King Louis was the first to take the cross, and his vassals forgot their earlier coolness in their eagerness to follow him. The next country was Germany. The Germans hitherto had played an undistinguished part in the crusading movement. Their Christian zeal had rather been directed towards the forcible evangelization of the heathen Slavs on their eastern border. Since the beginning of the century, missionary work and German colonization had been going on in the Slavonic districts in Pomerania and Brandenburg, and the German lords regarded this expansion of Christendom as a more important task than a war against Islam, whose menace was to them remote and theoretical. They were therefore disinclined to respond to St. Bernard's preaching, nor was their king, Conrad of Hohenstaufen, greatly, though he admired the saint, much more eager to listen to him. He had Mediterranean interests, but they were restricted to Italy, where he had promised the Pope help against the recalcitrant Romans and against Roger of Sicily in return for his much-desired imperial coronation. And his own position was still insecure in Germany itself. Despite his victory at Weinsburg in 1140, he still was faced with the enmity of the supporters of the House of Welf, while the antics of his Babenberger half-brothers and sisters raised trouble for him all along his eastern flank. When St. Bernard, after writing round to secure the cooperation of the German bishops, met the king at Frankfurt on the Main in the autumn of 1146, Conrad prevaricated, and Bernard would have gone back to Clairvaux had the bishops not begged him to continue his preaching. He therefore turned southward to preach the crusade at Freiburg, at Basel, at Schaffhausen and Constance. The tour was immediately successful, even though the sermons had to be translated by a German interpreter. The humbler people flocked to take the cross. The crops in Germany had failed that year, and there was famine in the land. Starvation breeds a mystic exaltation, and it is probable that many in Bernard's audience thought, like the pilgrims of the First Crusade, that the journey eastward would bring them to the riches of the New Jerusalem. By the spring of 1147, the French and German armies were ready to march. During June, the German army moved through Hungary, The young Hungarian king Geza was well disposed and there was no unpleasant incident. 
A Byzantine embassy met King Conrad in Hungary to ask him on the Byzantine emperor's behalf whether he came as a friend or foe and to beg him to take an oath to do nothing against the welfare and interests of the Byzantine emperor. This oath of non-injury was well chosen for in certain parts of the West it was the usual oath for a vassal to take to his overlord. It was, for example, the oath that Raymond of Toulouse had taken to the Byzantine Emperor Alexius I during the First Crusade. Yet it was so framed that King Conrad could hardly refuse to take it without labelling himself as the Emperor's enemy. Therefore he took it and the Byzantine ambassadors then promised him every assistance while he should be in Byzantine territory. On about the 20th of July, King Conrad crossed into the Byzantine Empire at Branicevo. Byzantine ships helped to convey his men across the Danube. At Nish, the governor of the Bulgarian province, Michael Branas, met him and provided the army with food that had been stored up against its arrival. At Sofia, which it reached a few days later, the governor of Thessalonica, the emperor's cousin Michael Paleologus, gave Conrad an official welcome from the emperor. So far, all had gone well. Conrad wrote to friends in Germany that he was satisfied with everything. But after leaving Sofia, his men began to pillage the countryside and to refuse to pay the villagers for what they took, even slaughtering those who protested. When complaints were made to King Conrad, he confessed that he could not discipline the rabble. At Philippopolis, there were worse disorders. More food was stolen and a riot occurred when a local juggler who had hoped to gain some money from the soldiers by showing off his tricks was accused by the Germans of sorcery. The suburbs were burnt down, but the city walls were too strong for the Germans to attack. The Archbishop Michael Italicus protested so vigorously to King Conrad that he was shamed into punishing the ringleaders. The Emperor Manuel then sent troops to accompany the Crusaders and to keep them to the road. This only produced worse disorders, as the Byzantines and Germans frequently came to blows. The climax came near Adrianople when some Byzantine bandits robbed and killed a German magnate who had lingered behind sick, whereupon Frederick of Swabia burnt down the monastery near which the crime had been committed and slew its monks. Drunken stragglers who were abundant amongst the Germans were then slain in retaliation whenever they fell into Byzantine hands. When the Byzantine commander Prosuk had restored peace and the army resumed its march, an embassy came from the Byzantine Emperor Manuel, who was now seriously alarmed, to urge King Conrad to take the road to Sestos on the Hellespont and cross there into Asia. It would be regarded as an unfriendly act were the Germans to march on Constantinople, he was told. Conrad would not agree. The Emperor Manuel then seems to have decided to oppose the Crusaders by force, but at the last moment countermanded his orders to the Byzantine commander Prosuk. The Germans were soon visited by divine punishment as they lay encamped at Chiraphas on the Thracian plain. A sudden inundation swept through their tents, drowning many of the soldiers and destroying much property. Only Frederick's detachment encamped on higher ground was unharmed. There was, however, no further serious incident until the army reached Constantinople on about the 10th of September. Meanwhile, 
King Louis and the French army followed about a month behind. The French king himself set out from Saint-Denis on the 8th of June and summoned his vassals to meet him at Metz a few days later. His expedition was probably a little smaller than King Conrad's. All the nobles who had taken the cross with him at Vézelay came to fulfil their vows, and with the king was his wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, the greatest heiress in France and niece to the Prince of Antioch. The countesses of Flanders and Toulouse and many other great ladies travelled with their husbands. The Grand Master of the temple, Everard of Bar, joined the army with a regiment of recruits for his order. The king himself was only aged 26. He was famed for piety rather than for a strong personality. His wife and his brother both wielded considerable influence over him. As a commander, he was untried and indecisive. On the whole, his troops were better disciplined and less wanton than the Germans, though there were disorders at Worms at the crossing of the Rhine. When all the French contingents had joined the king, the army set out through Bavaria at Ratisbon, where it arrived on the 29th of June. Ambassadors from the Byzantine Emperor Manuel were waiting. They asked for guarantees that King Louis would behave as a friend while in Byzantine territory and that he would promise to restore to the Byzantine Empire any of its former possessions that he should conquer. Apparently, they did not require him to swear the oath of non-injury, whose significance he might have realised too well. Louis declared formally that he was coming as a friend, but he gave no promise about his future conquests, finding the request dangerously vague. From Ratisbon, the French army journeyed peaceably for 15 days through Hungary and reached the Byzantine frontier at the end of August. They crossed the Danube at Branicevo and followed the main road through the Balkans. They found some difficulty in procuring sufficient food, for the Germans had consumed pretty much all that was available, and the excesses committed by the Germans made the local inhabitants suspicious and unwilling to help. Moreover, the local merchants were far too ready to give short measure after insisting on prepayment. But the Byzantine officials were friendly and the French commanders kept their men in order. There was no serious trouble until the army drew near to Constantinople, although the French began to feel resentment against both the Byzantines and the Germans at Adrianople, the Byzantine authorities tried, as with King Conrad, to persuade King Louis to bypass the capital and to cross the Hellespont into Asia without going to Constantinople. Meanwhile, some of the French, impatient with the leisurely progress of their army, hurried ahead to join the Germans, but the Germans were unfriendly, refusing to spare them rations. The contingents from Lorraine, already on bad terms with their German comrades, joined with these Frenchmen and inflamed French public opinion against the Germans. Thus, before ever the French king even arrived at Constantinople, relations between the two crusading armies were suspicious and embittered, and the Germans and French alike were ill-disposed towards Byzantium. It did not augur well for the success of the Second Crusade. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd be hugely grateful if you left any ratings. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear what happened to the Second Crusade as it progressed through Byzantium and into the Middle East.